Thursday was Thanksgiving, and this was, uh, Thanksgiving was a practice that first began in 1621, when the pilgrims thanked the Lord for providing for them a place to live and, and, and survival. But did you know that uh, that first year, their lives uh, almost ended, all of them, because of the harsh winter conditions that they lived in, and in this new surrounding, they had no idea how to live, what to do how to take care of themselves. Had it not been for an English-speaking, Christ-loving Indian named Squanto, they would have died. Squanto taught them how to fish, how to farm, how to hunt, how to trap, how to live, how to survive. Had it not been for Squanto, they would have died. Now, I don't want you guys to to run past that last statement like I've done for so many years. Here they are, they, they get off a boat and they come to America and they find an Indian who speaks English. And he's a Christian. I mean, that would be the equivalent of us today going to Mars and finding something like that. I mean, this is something that is unheard of. Years before this, Squanto had left home and he'd gone to London. And he wanted to learn the ways of the white man. And he, and he learns English. And then he comes back with John Smith as John Smith comes to settle Jamestown. And, and after serving with John Smith, John Smith gives him permission to go home. And right before he gets back to his village, he is captured by another captain who was with John Smith who went further south and is coming back up and captures Squanto and, and ties him up and sells him into slavery. And he takes them to Spain. And then Squanto uh, gets off the boat in Spain and is being auctioned off. And there are these two monks that see him and take pity on him and buy him. And then they release him. And they give him passage back to London. And he stays there several more years before he can come back to America. And when he gets back to America, he finally gets home. And he finally finds that trail that takes him back to his village and it's overgrown with, of, with weeds and brush and he gets back to his village and, and it's empty it's gone and everyone's gone and he begins to look around for his family and for his friends and he comes across another Indian and asks what happened to my village and he said everyone is dead everyone has died uh, two years ago everyone got sick and there's no one left you're the only one Squanto and so for the next several months Squanto goes with this other Indian from this other village and he lives with them for several months and then after the winter is over he meets the pilgrims and when I hear this story I hear and I see God's sovereign hand everywhere so here you go you got Squanto goes to England learns English he, he learns English and then he comes back, and right before he gets to his, his village, he's captured. Had he not been captured, he would have died with the villagers, with his Indian family, just like all the others. He would have died. He would not have been there to help the pilgrims. So he's captured. He's taken to Spain, bought by monks who took pity on him, shared the gospel. He becomes a believer in Spain. They release him. He goes back to England, finds passage, comes back to America, meets the pilgrims. Well, first he, he comes back, finds his village gone, and then goes and stays in this other village. When he comes and meets the pilgrims, 
he finds that they are, have made camp where his village once was. He's able to show them how to, uh, to, to grow crops. Part of growing crops is clearing land. They didn't have to clear land because land was already cleared because there was a village that was once there. Taught them how to fish. Taught them how to survive. See, it was the pilgrims who didn't have to clear land. So, so at this first Thanksgiving, the pilgrims who were actually trying to land further south in Virginia, that was their desire to go further south because of the harsh winters up further north, land here in Plymouth Rock exactly where God wanted them and had the right man for them. And so at this first Thanksgiving, they thank God. They don't thank the Indians like a lot of the elementary school history books say nowadays. They thank God. It was God who they thanked. And after reading and studying John 17, that is my response. I want to thank God for my high priest. The title of this message is More Application than observation. And when I look back at the life of Christ and, the, and then read John 17, I see God's sovereign hand everywhere. My prayer for you uh, has been that you would see his hand not here, not only here in this passage, but in your life as well. Concerning the high priestly prayer, Martin Luther said this, this is truly beyond measure a warm and hearty prayer. He opens the depths of his heart both in reference to us and to his Father. And he pours them all out. It sounds so honest, so simple. It is so deep, so rich, so wide, no one can fathom it. John Knox, the Scottish reformer, had this prayer read to him every day towards the end of his life as he lied in his bed, dying. He testified that these verses continued to bring great comfort and were a source of strength for his conflict. John 17, as, as we will soon see, has three parts. The first part, uh, we find Christ praying for himself. It's a short part, verses 1 through 5. And then verses 6 through 19, we're going to look at, at Christ praying for his disciples. And we see the great love and care that he does in doing so, verses 6 through 19. And finally, we see him praying for everyone else who will believe. That is including you, and that is including me. This here has been called truly the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, they said, could be more commonly or more correctively called the Disciples' Prayer, but this right here truly is the Lord's Prayer. What has happened up to this point? Jesus and his disciples have entered the upper room. They've entered the upper room and, and they have had the Lord's Supper. Jesus has washed the feet of the disciples. He's taken the role of a servant and he has washed the disciples' feet. And then Judas leaves to betray Christ. Let's look at the first five verses here. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all the flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, uh, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. When Jesus had spoken these words, what words? Well, this, is, this is where Jesus is making it clear who he is and what is about to happen. This 
upper room discourse, Jesus is really revealing himself to the disciples. And they're really beginning to understand who he is. He's more than just a man. He's more than just a guy that can, that can uh, do miracles. He is the Son of God. And they're really beginning to understand that. And then we see Jesus say, the hour has come. Jesus spoke a lot about this hour. It was mentioned a whole lot through the Gospels. We saw this in John 2 when Jesus was with uh, at, at, the, at, the, uh, at the wedding of Canaan. And his mother comes to him and, and begins to tell him about that they, they were out of wine, that there was nothing else to drink. And Jesus mentioned that thou, my hour is not here. Ryan mentioned this last week. My hour hasn't come yet. But he goes and he gives instructions to everyone on on what to do to bring him to bring him water and then we know the rest we know that he turns water into wine in john 7 he's uh it, it shows the crowds are beginning to wonder who who is this guy who who is who is jesus can he be the one and there were there was grumbling amongst the religious they wanted to arrest him but again we see in john 7 that his hour had not come in john 8 we see christ claimed to be god and this really angered him, angered the religious crowd. They were angry because he claimed to be God. It was blasphemy. He was blaspheming, and they wanted him arrested. But again, we see that his hour had not come. And then at John 13, Jesus makes the, makes the observation that the hour had come. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then Jesus washes to the disciples' feet. His hour had come. Nothing could happen that was going to happen until his hour had come. Before his birth, Jesus had possessed the glory of God in every sense. He possessed the fullness of God's attributes and character on the inward sense. He also possessed the fullness of God's outward visible glory. And as Christ the man, he laid the outward visible glory that was due to him. He laid that outward visible glory down. Had he not, the Gospels would have, would have been much more different. And I'm speaking from the perspective of Exodus 33 when, Jesus, when, excuse me, when Moses is up on Mount Sinai. And, he is, and he's getting instruction from God. He's getting the commandments from God. And down below uh, in the valley, uh, the Israelites are making that golden calf. They're making an idol. And Jesus, um, excuse me again, Moses is up on the mountain. And he asks to see God. He wants to see God. And God says, no one can see me and live. But then God uh, allows Jesus to see his backside. He, he kind of does like a stiff arm kind of thing and puts his hand out over Moses so Moses can't see but allows him to see the backside because if he saw God, if he saw the Lord, he would have dropped dead. So from that perspective, if Jesus kept his outward visible glory, the Gospels would have been much different. All the healing that Jesus did in the Gospels would have consisted of raising people from the dead. It would have been it would have been raise them from the dead and then do it again because they saw him again. And so the, the Gospels would have, have been much, much different. Verses 2 and verses 3. Jesus has authority over everyone who has ever lived and who will ever live. Angels and demons are under his authority 
as well. This includes authority on all who will know him. Everyone who knows Christ is because he wants them to know. Now, I, I don't understand, nor do I believe I will fully understand God's election for those who will believe. And I'm not even sure I will understand that on the other side of eternity. Here's what I'm certain of, and this truth should make us give thanks to our high priest. God chooses. He chooses. If you know the Lord, it is because he called you. He chose you, as Ephesians 1 says, before the foundations of the world. We do not have authority on our own to be his. Rejoice, Christian, because under his authority, you are his. That should cause us to rejoice, knowing that he chose you, not because of anything special about you, but for his own good pleasure, he wanted you. And he saved you. He called you. Rejoice over that. Look at verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is a great work. This is a great work. Now, imagine for a moment you're perfect. All right? Imagine you're perfect. That means you wake up in the morning and you're sinless. You're in perfect fellowship with God. You go to work and you're perfect, which means you get to work on time. You're perfect. You don't grumble. You don't complain. You don't fight with other people. You don't, you don't talk about your boss. You don't complain about them. When things don't go right, you don't complain. You're in perfect fellowship. You come home. You don't argue with your family. You don't, you, don't, you don't get frustrated with your kids because they haven't cleaned their room, because they haven't eaten their vegetables. You're in perfect fellowship with your spouse, with your wife, with your husband. You're in, you have this perfect relationship with them because you're perfect. Imagine that just for one day. Imagine that. Now, I tell you to imagine that because you can't live it. You can't. You can't do that. You can't. It's impossible. Christ lived every single day for us perfectly. He lived it perfectly without sin every day because we could not. He obeyed the Father perfectly because we could not. He paid our sin debt because we could not. This is a perfect work. It is also a finished work. What does Jesus say right before he gives up his spirit on the cross? It is finished. That's right. It is finished. What is finished? This great work that he was sent by God to do. Now let's look at uh, Jesus praying for his disciples. Verses 6 through 19. I have manifested your name to your people whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you have given me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I come from you. And they have believed that you have sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours. And yours are mine. And I'm glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name 
which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that also they may be sanctified in truth. What a great God we serve. What a great God that we serve. Here he is, hours from unspeakable horror of being arrested, of being put through a mock trial, being, being ridiculed, being hung on a cross, and, a, and being abandoned by Almighty God, and, and God's wrath being poured out on him, and knowing that it pleases the Lord to do this to his Son, a great God. Here he is, knowing that all this is about to happen. And here he is, he's, he's praying to the one that is going to pour out his wrath on him for his disciples, for those he loves. He said, God, protect them. I know what I'm about to go through. I know what is about to happen to me. Protect them. Look at these first few verses. It's Jesus describing the disciples' salvation. God the Father chose these men and gave and gave them to God the Son. I have manifested, I have made known your name to your people. The words you've given me to say, and I have said them. I have said them. What you've given me, I have said them. Not only have they received your word, they have kept it. They have kept your word. God, they've, they've heard your word, they've received your word, they've kept your word, and they've obeyed your word. And, and you see the same thing here in, in verse 8. And this is something very important we need to, uh, to, to, to note here. That what's happening here, them obeying the word, is ultimately what gets the disciples crucified, speared, and, and, and ultimately killed for the gospel. As they're martyred for their faith, it's because they kept the gospel. They obeyed the gospel. They believed the gospel, and they shared the gospel. This is very important to note here. Men won't willingly and knowingly die for a lie. They will, people will die for a lie, but it's because they don't know it's a lie. But if you know something's a lie, and it's your life or the truth, guess what? You give the truth. The disciples gave the truth, and they gave their lives Think about that time after Pentecost. As we see through Scripture how the disciples died, it gives evidence and testimony of how some of them had died. You think about Stephen as he boldly proclaimed the gospel. And they, filled with rage, stoned him. He could have stopped and said, I was kidding. It was a lie. I just wanted to make you notice me. But no, he takes it and he stands and he says, Behold, I see the heavens opening up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Look at the testimony. Only John can say, I live to old age. But it's not the fact that they didn't try to kill me. They did. They they'd shipwrecked me. I was exiled 
I want to make a quick note here at verses 9 and 10. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. God shows what theologians call common grace, and he shows this to everyone. Common grace. This is, this is grace that he gives to believers and unbelievers alike. Life is common grace. The air that we breathe right now is common grace. I believe there's different levels of common grace. Geographically speaking, we could say that because we're Americans, because we are fortunate enough, both believers and unbelievers, to live in the United States, while there are many others who are living in unspeakable horror in, in other parts of the world where there's horrible regimes of dictatorships who are oppressing their people like in North Korea. Who says it's fair? Who says that we can live here with the freedoms that we have, both believers and non-believers together in the United States, and then there be believers and non-believers in North Korea having to go through what they're going through? Well, this is geographically, this is common grace for us. But this is not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about this in verses 9 in 10. This is not, this, this isn't common grace. Christ is making a distinction here. He's saying, I'm not praying for everyone. I'm only praying for those you've given me. And this must bring great comfort to those that are in this room to hear Christ praying specifically for them. Specifically for them. By now the disciples are really beginning to see what's going on here. They know that his hour has come. Jesus is saying that these things are going to, gen- to change. I've been with you, and I'm not going to be with you here shortly. Jesus petitions the Father to protect them. He can't watch out for his disciples while he's being crucified, but God the Father can. When he's on the cross, he can't take care of his disciples, but he knows that God the Father will be able to protect them from the evil one. Christ is saying, we're glorified in them. God, they bring us glory. Protect them. I haven't lost any except the one that Scripture said would be lost, and that was to fulfill Scripture. In Psalms 41, we see a picture of a man who takes care of the poor and the downtrodden, and then he suffers because of that. And in verse 9, we read, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Scripture was fulfilled here. This, the son of destruction, the son of partition, uh, left, and, and we know what happened to him. Verse 14, Jesus is saying, I've given them your word, and because they have accepted your word, the world hates them. The world hates them, and we've already mentioned that with the disciples, how they died, how they were martyred. And let me go through this list real quick for you. Peter was crucified. He was crucified around 67 or 68 A.D. James, the son of Zebedee, was put to death by Herod Agrippa I, 11 years after Christ's death. Andrew was crucified. Bartholomew Bartholomew was crucified upside down. James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned to death. James' brother John, again, he died of old age, but not before they attempted to kill kill him and exile him. Matthew was speared. So was Thomas. Philip was crucified, and as was Simon the Zealot. Thaddeus was stoned to death, 
And again, we know what happened to Judas. The disciples were hated because of Christ. They were hated. And there's application there for us also. Know that the world is going to hate us because of our love for God. Because of our service to Him. Because of our love for one another. We are going to be hated. But if that is the worst that can happen to us, we still win. We still win. Jesus Jesus doesn't just want the disciples to be protected externally. He wants them to be internally protected as well. Father, sanctify them. We know that it's not just a physical that we need to guard against. It's those inside sins that no one in here else knows about. The ones that we struggle with, the ones that we really need help with. Because unless, let's be honest, unless someone points them out, our pride will prevent us prevent us from from declaring them and confessing them and asking for forgiveness we need protection on our own we won't we'll live with it we'll play with it we'll embrace it because we've done that we've all done that before christ we embraced our sin we need god's protection from not just that external sin from that internal sin as well we need his protection and so so did the disciples and christ asked the father to sanctify them to keep them pure so they could do the work that Christ has for them. Father, sanctify them. They need you. They can't do this on their own. I'm going to be gone. They need you. Finally, let's see Christ's prayer for those who will believe. And again, that includes us. And this is probably the most exciting to me. 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believed in me through the word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me, and love them, even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in with them and I I like to think about that time in my life when the Lord saved me and the events that he, he set up, that he put in place, he put in motion for me to know him. I think about my boss at the car wash that I worked at between, oh, I think it was 99 through 2003, I think I was there, 2002, something like that. And uh, this, is, this is the time when, when the Lord saved me. And uh, I, I guess I had been especially brash and sarcastic. I know that is a great shock to a lot of you, but I was really sarcastic one day at work uh, with with my with my uh, coworkers, with my boss, even with the employee, I mean, even with the customers that came in. And my boss calls me in and had every right to fire me. He had every right to tell me to take my things and go home and never come back. But that's not what he does. He brings me in. And he, and he gives me a blank sheet of paper, and he says, Robbie, I want you to write down 
the top five things that are most important to you. And I thought, well, what is this? And so I, I wrote down like friends and family and good times and Alabama football. You know, different different things. I had to. Different things. And, and I hand it back to him. He's, okay, well, first of all, what should be number one is not even on your list. And then he shares the gospel with me. And I kind of laugh and I scoff it off. And then I walk away from that, mainly thankful that I still had a job because I, I needed it. Um, and then I, I think about my friend who invited me to church one day. Uh, I went to go visit him at his work, and, and he invited me to go to church with him. And so, so I, 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 go, I go to church with him. And then I think about that college and career group that just loved me in spite of what I looked like, in spite of who I was. They accepted me, not as I was, but who they saw uh, who I could be with the Lord's help. They looked past this punk kid, this punk guy with an eyebrow ring, and saw what God saw. Something worth saving. And I'm so thankful for all these people. I'm so, I'm so thankful for the people that prayed for me. All those hours they must have sit praying for me. But here's what I'm most thankful for. They weren't the first pray for me. 2,000 years ago, in the upper room, God the Son was the first to pray for me. And every single one of you that believe, that know the Lord, could say the same thing. Although there's different circumstances there, and I'm sure none of you had an eyebrow ring. But we could all say the end result, the Lord prayed for me before anyone else did. Before the foundation of the, wor- the world. He knew me before the foundation of the world. My name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. Every believer in this room, again, can say the same thing. We were all prayed for that night in that upper room before he went to the cross, before he lived and endured everything that he knew he was going to endure, everything he knew he was going to have to live through. He knew that. This wasn't a big surprise to him. He didn't show up one night for dinner and then, surprise, you're going to be arrested. No, he knew this. He, he willingly went to the cross. He knew this. And before he did that, he prayed for us. Doesn't that just make you want to praise him? Doesn't that just make you want to look a little differently at John 17 and not just skip past that to get to the good Easter part? He prayed for every single one of us. Jesus says that there will be unity in Christ and that will make the world know Christ was sent by the Father. It is the church who takes this truth out to all people groups. It is us that will take it out. Think about our responsibility here in Oxford. Okay, let's say that uh, we can't find unity here. Let's say, for example, that we believe the gospel is not our main focus, our main theme. Okay, so I'm going to break y'all up into three sections right here. Okay, this section over here, you guys are all, they're all focused in on helping the homeless. Okay, this is the homeless section. Not, well, not the homeless section, but you guys are all focused on helping the homeless. Luke, you're okay. You got a home. He, he literally had his mouth open like we're homeless now. Um, you're not. Um, but the roof over your head is mine. Um, so you guys are thinking, this great big building, 
This is what we need to do. We, we got this kitchen in the back. Let's, let's take care of the homeless. Let's, uh, let's uh, feed them. Let's provide a place for them to stay and to live and to put beds upstairs and showers in the room. Let's make it look really nice, kind of, kind of like a, a homeless shelter. I mean, great. That, that's a great idea, right? So that's what we're going to do at Redeemer Church. Everyone, you guys over here, get in line. This is what we're going to do. We're going to fix the homeless. Well, the sinner's like, well, that's okay. That's a good idea. But this is the real problem. This is what we really need to take care of. We need to take, there's a lot of people on drugs out there. People are suffering because of drug addiction. So we're going to set up a drug treatment center. We're going to get the best counselors. We're going to get the best 12-step programs. We're going to get, you know, we're going to have the best commercials on television. We're going to start a TV show about addiction and an intervention. And we're, we're going to, you know, we're going to, help people. We're going to get them off drugs. We're going to get medication for them. We're going, to, we're going to teach them to be viable citizens in the community and help them get jobs after they're off of drugs and help them get their life cleaned and help them get back together with their family. So you guys over here and you guys over here, get behind us. We're going to give you jobs on how to take care of, the, of people with addictions. Well, this crowd over here is like, well, those are both are great ideas, but we think we got the best one. Here's what we want. Have you seen the kids at the mall on Friday and Saturday night? They're kind of scary. Kids are in real big trouble. So what we want to do is have an after-school program. We want to, we want to have like this youth club, this youth shelter, this, this place where these kids who normally go home at night when their parents are at work, so they carry a key and they let themselves in and take care of themselves. We want to provide a shelter for them. We want them to come here and have games to play. we got the ping pong table back there. We'll get some pool tables and arcade games, and we'll bring tutors. We'll bring nurses and, and other things like that that can take care of kids' needs who normally don't get to see doctors. We'll have dental, you know, dentists come here, and they'll, you know, they'll, they will inspect them. They'll, they'll, they'll help them. They'll take care of them. So we're going to have this after-school program and this, this help for parents. So you guys over here with your little think are good ideas we got the best idea over here so so see what i've set up i've set up a room full of people with great intentions but there's no unity there's no unity here at all the homeless the people that want to help the homeless don't really care about y'all's ideas and vice versa no one here cares about anyone but their own idea so now let's say we're all unified with the gospel unified in Christ. We want the gospel to go out. If the gospel is our unity, if the gospel is the point of this church, if, if, if proclaiming the truth to everybody in the community is the point of why we exist, then these people over here say, yeah, look, I think it's a good idea that we, that we help the homeless. Let's do what like the Salvation Army is and bring them in and share, the, share God's truth with them. Because there's not a hot meal in the world that can fix what the gospel can't fix. And then you're over here and you're like, yes, that's, that's right. And because of the gospel, these people need to know God. There is not enough 12-step programs on planet Earth that can fix the real root of someone's addiction. And then over here, these kids need Jesus. Have you seen the statistics? After the age of 18, it's next to impossible for someone to to hear the gospel and receive it, statistically speaking. So now we're all unified in the gospel, able to do all these other great things because the gospel drives us. Because the gospel drives us. The outside world, when they look at believers arguing with other believers, they laugh. 
they laugh. But when, other, when the unbelievers see believers loving one another, it offers proof for them that the Father has loved those who believed in the Son. When they see us come together with all our disagreements, with, with those who want the homeless fed, when, with those who want those on uh, drugs, taken off of drugs, and with those who want to help those kids in after-school programs, because of the gospel, they see all unified. It gives testimony for what the Father has done in our lives. I mentioned the car wash earlier. There were two brothers, Jonathan and, and Byron Haney. They went to... Uh, Leslie, what's your school you go to down? Grace? No, what's it called? Trinity. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it was a Christian school. So she goes to Trinity. They went. They graduated from Trinity years ago. The Haney boys and I. I worked with them. They were the first people who ever said that they were believers, and I believed them because I met a lot of people that said they knew Christ, and I couldn't tell. But when these guys said it, they lived it out in front of me. And I believed every word they said. We'd work together. I would get frustrated. They would get frustrated. But I would react this way. And they would react in a whole new way. A way that pleased God. And I saw that. It made a difference in my life. Look at the last three verses here. Then we'll be done. 24 through 26. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you love me may be in them. And I in them. It hurts to lose someone you love. It hurts. When a believer dies, we still mourn. Even though we know where that person is, we still mourn. Not for them, but for ourselves. And Christ wants us with him in heaven. He's the reason why heaven is heaven. It's not the pearly gates. It's not the streets of gold. Or even the fact that we will see loved ones who have gone on before us. Christ, heaven is heaven because Christ is there. He's there, and He wants us there with Him. Now, I said earlier, the title, Give Thanks for a High Priest, is application. It's not really observation here. It should be application. What other response is there for us? We have seen His great love for the Father. We've seen His, uh, his great protection for the disciples and His great desire to be with us in glory. Believers, you have one response here. That's to praise Him. That's to serve Him. That's to tell others about Him. Well, that may be more than one response. But instantly, it is to praise Him for what He's done. Unbelievers, you, you have a response also. That is to believe the gospel. That is to believe that he lived that life that you couldn't live. He paid that debt that you could not pay. To believe that. To believe, to trust him. And then to praise him. Those are our responses. Let's pray. Father, you have been so good to us. 
even when we do not deserve it, you have been so good to us. Father, before the foundation of the world, you have chosen us for your own good pleasure, not because you looked down and saw something great, saw something redeemable in us. There is nothing redeemable. Father, outside of you, there is no hope for us. You would have been justified. You would have been right in casting every single one of us to hell. You would have been right and good and worthy of worship to never have sent your son. But, oh God, thank you that you sent your son. Thank you, Jesus, that you knew what was going to happen and you still came. You still lived that perfect life. You still struggled with, uh, with, with the wrath of your Father being poured out on you. But Father, you, you endured to the end. And Lord, that it wasn't that you endured to the end and that you died, but you rose and you made a way. It wasn't that you were just another sacrifice on an altar for one year, Father. You defeated sin for all time and you chose us. Father, may we praise you because of that truth. May we worship you today, tonight, tomorrow, and every day until we see you, till you come back or we go to you. Or be with us now. It's in your name we pray. Amen. would please stand and sing as we sing to the high priest that Robbie was talking about. It's just an opportunity to praise him.